Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, Gaslighting in History. The date is October 2022, and my name is Bell Avis. I have always loved the story of the Potemkin villages, so much that I used it in the title of a podcast from about two years ago. That one was about Joe Biden's Potemkin campaign, a presidential run that featured Biden in his basement. No rallies, no shaking hands, and no firing up of crowds. The Story of the Villages, by Ishan Thoreau, writing for Time Magazine back in 2010, is as follows. Grigory Potemkin was a dashing 18th century Russian nobleman who intrigued in courts, smote his enemies upon the steps, and allegedly wooed Catherine the Great. It was while he was courting his nation's comely Tsarina, well, at least according to legend she was, that his name came to forever stand for something insubstantial and fake. For Catherine's 1783 tour of new Russian possessions in the Crimea, Yes, the same Crimea that is now part of Russia and was once part of the Ukraine. I always like the story when Boris Johnson, supposedly a smart man, the former prime minister of of the United Kingdom, once said that if Putin were a woman, he never would have invaded the Ukraine. Well, for one, I could name at least a dozen warrior queens and empresses over the tides of history, but one of them, Catherine, a Russian, did invade Ukraine. Okay, well, technically she wasn't Russian, she was German, but you get the picture. Boris Johnson, a smart man, also shows that smart men can be complete blithering idiots. So, sorry, I digress. Back to it. Catherine was touring the Crimea. Potemkin endeavored to show her the best face of the empire, and as the story goes, pasteboard facades of pretty towns were set up at a distance, on riverbanks. Therefore, it stops, Catherine would be greeted by regiments of Amazonian snipers or fields set ablaze by burning braziers and exploding rockets spelling her initials. Whole populations of serfs were moved around and dressed up in fanciful garb to flaunt a prosperity that did not exist. Of course, this also later precipitated famine in the region because by moving all these serfs around, who was actually doing the farming? But in any event, a Potemkin village is a stand-in for something that from a distance looks real, but instead is somebody's ability to try to prove fakery. And in this case, the entire fakery was really aimed at a single individual. But as we will see, a lot of fakery, or the term we're going to feature within this podcast, can be aimed at entire populations of large nations. I often think of this story, the story of Potemkin villages, when considering the term gaslighting. I have been reading about politics for, geez, 30 years, and writing and doing podcasting for nearly five, yet this one was new to me. This term, so new that my spell checker keeps wanting to separate it into two words, is defined by Forbes writer Marissa Conrad as gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation that hinges on creating self-doubt. I think of gaslighting as trying to associate someone with the label crazy, says Paige Sweet, PhD, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Michigan, who studies gaslighting in relationships and the workplace. 
It's making someone seem or feel unstable, irrational, and not credible, making them feel like they're seeing or experiencing isn't real, that they're making it up, and no one else will believe them. In other words, the term gaslighting originally emanated from psychology, often involving victims of abuse, whose abusers would convince them that the problem lay with them, the victim, and not their abuser. Psychology Today states, Gaslighting is an insidious form of manipulation and psychological control. Victims of gaslighting are deliberately and systematically fed false information that leads them to question what they know to be true, often about themselves. They may end up doubting their memory, perception, and sanity. Over time, a gaslighter's manipulations can grow more complex and potent, making it increasingly difficult for the victim to see the truth. The term gaslighting comes from a 1938 play, Gaslight, and its film adaptation. Gaslighting can occur in personal or professional relationships, and victims are targeted at the core of their being, their sense of identity and self-worth. Manipulative people who engage in gaslighting do so to attain power over their victims, either because they simply derived warped enjoyment from the act or because they wish to emotionally, physically, or financially control their victim. As with so much, well, way too much, of our political discourse, this terminology has broadened beyond its original subject matter to define a particular form of political messaging that is somewhat connected to the term's original meaning. Beginning in the 2010s, the term has been used to describe the behavior of politicians and media personalities on both the political spectrum's left and right sides, no doubt linking it back to the original psychological manipulation. Some examples include Russia's global relations, Russian operatives were active in Crimea in 2017. Russian officials continually denied their presence and manipulated the distrust of political groups in their favor. Columnist Maureen Dowd described the Bill Clinton administration's use of the technique in subjecting Newt Gingrich to small indignities intended to provoke him to make public complaints that came across as hysterical back in the mid-1990s. And of course, as the political figure who has dominated discourse for the past seven years, American journalists widely use the term gaslighting to describe the actions of Donald Trump during the 2016 U.S. presidential election and his term as president, as well as his response to his 2020 loss. As with manipulating words in other contexts, some mental health experts have expressed concern that the broader use of the term is diluting its usefulness and may make it more challenging to identify the specific type of abuse described in that original definition in the world of psychology. Therefore, for purposes of this podcast, I am using that broader definition that a psychologist might, might reject, but still keeping the core meaning. And that is a person in power trying to convince someone or a large group of people that what they believe is real is false, and what is false is real. I think of gaslighting as different, or at least a different variation to good old, well, out-and-out lying, telling a whopper, as they say. Here's an example. 
I had a 400-pound tuna on my fishing rod. Oh, but the line broke and I lost the catch. Or, as I once told my father about being caught with beards in my possession during my high school days, I bought these myself. Of course, they were provided with a buyer's fee by my older brothers, and one would think it was some sort of obvious code of brotherly conduct that guaranteed my silence, that it wouldn't rat out my brothers. But the real reason was is that they were not just older but bigger, and confession may be good for the soul, but my body would suffer. The point is, is, is that this fake tuna catch, or where the beers actually come from, were not only lies, but lies that were hard to prove. Gaslighting is more akin to, believe me, not your lion eyes. The gaslighter will tell you, the sky is green and the grass is blue. And there is more than a, a little bit of similarity to the epic Star Trek Next Generation episode where Captain Picard, captured by the Marshall Kardashian race, is tortured into believing something that is not true. How many lights did he see? In a moment of will, Captain Picard bursts out that he sees not the number his torturer suggests, but the actual number of lights shown. And yet, in a private consultation with his counselor, Deanna Troy, he confesses he actually saw the wrong number of lights. Now, gaslighting, I suppose, could be accomplished with torture, and the original psychological definition, in a sense, is sort of a form of torture. And by the way, we shouldn't give politicians and activists any cute ideas about the utilization of torture to prove their views. But as we shall see in America today, it is but simple repetition and narrative that seems to be reinforced by all the usual platforms. That repetition of a single narrative from all those platforms, that is how gaslighting is perpetuated today. It is also common, not just today, but in history, because it is so convenient for those in weak positions to use gaslighting instead of defending their rickety arguments. Though slavery had been around for thousands of years and was a common institution in the late 18th century, one might think it would not be vigorously questioned. Yet many founders, including Benjamin Franklin, struggled to reconcile the ideals of the Declaration of Independence with that and therefore tried to get an abolition of slavery into the Constitution. But a lot of the answers to people like Franklin were specious. Items such as this that are sort of, if you will, gaslighting on slavery back in the late 18th century. Here's one of them. Slavery was in the Bible. Here's another. Jesus did not specifically denounce it. And one of my favorites, it was better for the slaves to be taken care of where the evil factories of the North would not take care of them. My answer would have been, well, if slavery is so awesome to the slaves, let's give them a choice. Which would they rather uh, wish to do, stay on the plantations or move north to the factories? I get the feeling that if I had actually posed that question to the Southerners at the time, I would have been met by something not akin to civilized discourse. It was better for prebellum Southerners to gaslight the holding of their slaves because the outcome would be preordained in any debate that was actually on the institution's merits. Even the Southerners, I feel, I, I feel this in my heart of hearts, knew it was wrong. They just didn't know how to get away from it. 
I had mentioned torture in the case of Jean-Luc Picard in the Star Trek episode. It is not as if the writers of that episode had far to look for examples. In a 2017 piece for the Los Angeles Review of Books, writer Giovanni Vimercati reviews Vladimir Velminsky's Homo Sovieticus, Brainwaves, Mind Control, and Telepathic Destiny, initially published in German in 2013. The writer notes, The Soviet new man Leon Trotsky wrote in his 1924 treatise, Literature and Revolution, would make it his purpose to master his own feelings, to raise his instincts to the heights of consciousness, and to make them transparent, and therefore to extend the wires of his will into hidden recess. This materialist insistence on the malleability of thoughts and emotions interacted with a recondescence of pre-Soviet superstition, a form of political sorcery owing more to Rasputin than Lenin. Vermakati later writes, The scientific management of labor was the prelude to the attempts to manage and control thoughts. Just as Trotsky felt he could control his own thoughts, his learnings and teachings would be taken up by other Soviets to eventually try to control the thoughts and feelings of the entire Soviet bloc. Vimarkadi adds, just as the new man's actions could be perfected, so could his thoughts, or so a number of Soviet scientists believe. The problem was that the people of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact nations knew their governance was crap and began to pull away. But not to worry, the Soviets had the answers. The implementation of televisual mind control would thus need to wait a few decades. Indeed, it occurred just as the Eastern Bloc started to crumble. On October 8, 1989, a month before the Berlin Wall came down, the Soviet viewing audience was confronted by a singular televised event. At 8.30 p.m. on Channel 1, immediately after the evening news, a curious character appeared and declaimed a psalmodic tones, Relax, let your thoughts wander free. The man, Anatoly Mikhailovich Kasparovsky, was a licensed physician. And prior to his TV debut, he had provided his psychotherapeutic services to the national weightlifting team, which at the 1988 Olympic Games in Seoul carried away six gold medals. Kasparovsky's aim was to calm a land beset by turbulence and heal the body politic by setting viewers' minds to the state's new goals. Where the political reformation of Perestroika and Glasnost had failed, televisual mind control would step in and save the day. This was gaslighting with a bit of TV and much coercion, but the goal was the same. Bottom line is this, do not believe what is right in front of you. Even if you think your life is crap and that Soviet governance is a failure, don't worry. Just go to those wonderful inner thoughts and ignore what is right there in front of you. Now, I'm old enough to remember the Reagan-Mondale debates of 1984, but their resonance with me at the time was limited. However, becoming more of a political animal in the 1990s, my recollection of the 1992 campaigns, with three men, not the usual two, vying for the presidency, is still very evident and pertinent. That one was an exciting example of the third candidate spoiler. Did Ross Perot cost H.W. Bush a second term? 
Well, Bush certainly believes so, and given the gap between the winner, Bill Clinton, and Bush of 6 million votes, and the fact that Pro had nearly 20 million votes, it is not hard to make a case that a simple 66% of those votes went for Bush and 33% went for Clinton would mean that Bush would then have more popular votes, and further dividing those votes by states, such as Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan, would have provided Bush with the Electoral College and that coveted second term. I always remember the awesome Dana Carvey and his incredible interpretation of H.W. Bush lamenting in the Oval Office, I'm a one-termer, I'm a one-termer. Well, was it Ross Pro? Let's take a look. Regardless of Pro's presence, though, I remember the topics discussed and debated. In 1990, after the Persian Gulf War, Bush's approvals ratings were in the stratosphere to the point where many heavy-hitter Democrats, like Mario Cuomo, did not build up campaigns. Of course, an unknown, young governor of Arkansas with a petrifying wife decided, well, heck, what does he have to lose? Little did these people know that the good times and ratings for Bush were not going to last. In 1991, the economy tipped into recession, and Bush's numbers drop. Was it pro? Or was it the fact that he did not help his conservative cause that he broke a 1988 pledge and raised taxes? Bill Clinton focused on the economy in 1992 due to the recession. He also ran on school choice, a balanced budget amendment, opposition to illegal immigration, and support for NAFTA. And yes, Bill Clinton was not going to say he was going to cut taxes, but then again, Bush had already raised them anyway, thus giving away a central issue that he could have used as a cudgel against Clinton. Political operative James Carville is only suitable in very small, well, really, really small doses, but he did provide us with an invaluable phrase of politics that resonates to the present day, 30 years later, and that is, It's the economy, stupid. I know that in 2022, it might seem bizarre that politicians would debate, well, you know, policy. But the 90s were a crazy time. And in this benighted year, well, there's a dollop of policy, but a whole lot of gaslighting. Was there gaslighting in 1992? Of course. But the central debates, the central discussions, the central discourse was all around policies. Who would best handle the economy? Hence, Carvel's admonition. So let's look at some of the gaslighting today. On the subject of immigration, a super important topic, it was noted that at least 2 million immigrants had crossed the border this year. Well, Vice President Kamala Harris said in Meet the Press that the border is secure. And when asked what that means, she answered, We have a secure border in that it is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. Well, glad she cleared that up. In Georgia, we have a pro-life candidate, Herschel Walker, accused of paying for an abortion in 2009. And as we shall talk about a little later on, abortion is, well, it's a pretty important topic right now. After denying the charge, the Georgia Senate candidate was told that there was a receipt for $700. The candidate responded that, well, he had sent checks to many people. In the Pennsylvania senator's race, John Fetterman, a wealthy man who lived off family largesse for the first 20 years of his adult life, portrays himself as a working man 
with tattoos and a ridiculous hoodie. He also suffered a stroke earlier this year, which is clearly affecting his cognitive abilities. But nah, it's just a hearing loss thing. And to add to the gaslighting on Fetterman, we hear from his his wife, Giselle, who blasted NBC's Dasha Burns for her portrayal of a recent interview with the Pennsylvania U.S. Senate candidate accusing the reporter of ableism and calling Burns' behavior appalling. The problem is that a Rolling Stone interviewer noted on Twitter that she has been transformed from a reluctant political spouse to a de facto candidate. De facto candidate. Whoops. Gaslighting is not as effective when its effects are stated out loud. And finally, did I mention that I I hate, hate, hate Fetterman's stupid hoodie? Not only is it disingenuous because the man could probably afford to buy Savile Row suits, but it is also unserious. Is he going to wear the damn thing on the Senate floor if he wins? God help us. And even on the guys not on the ballot, but in the minds of voters, we have gaslighting galore. We have an increasingly aged 79-year-old Joe Biden, who his obviously fit and 48-year-old press secretary assures us that she has trouble keeping up with him. Trouble keeping up with him. She looks like she could go and rip off a marathon tomorrow. Joe Biden looks like sometimes he has difficulty walking the distance from the door to the podium. Joe Biden, who will not support additional domestic oil or natural gas production, was miffed that the Saudis are decreasing their production, and he's looking to Valenzuela for help, despite decrying that government's human rights records. We also have Biden on inflation, which at last count was 8.3% higher than in 2021. Stating that it is not going up, this was Biden's phrase, which means month-to-month increases, not annualized. In other words, in Biden land, if it was 8.3% one month and the next month it was 8.3%, that represents no increase. Hmm. Oh, well, I'm glad that's cleared up. Now, I will fork over $15 for butter that in 2019 cost me $10, but that $15 is the same that I spent in September, so it's all great. What am I worried about? And this is the same president who passed an Inflation Reduction Act with nothing to do with inflation and a whole lot to do with green subsidy pork. Biden also used the crisis of COVID to wipe out $420 million in student loans while simultaneously telling 60 Minutes that the COVID crisis was over. Maybe the sky is indeed green. And on Trump, simple question. If the government papers that were seized in the Mar-a-Lago raid were not important, as is his contention, then why would he have them in the first place? And I get it. It sickens my heart to think that the FBI, uh, what we would once think would be the premier investigative federal agency, is right now so rife with gaslighting, I can't even stand it. We later find out that they fully knew about the Russian collusion hoax, and basically covered it all up or didn't investigate it or didn't ask those questions because the FBI wasn't interested in investigating. They were interested in getting Trump. And speaking of Trump, the January 6th commission, which should have provided interesting, pertinent, and actionable insights into why a group at a political rally turned mob and attacked the seat of our legislative branch. But alas, that is not what happened. The committee did not do actionable, 
pertinent and at the end of the day not really that kind of interesting insights as to why all of this happened. As Andrew McCarthy of National Review notes, if that's all the committee was, in an attempt to correct the failures of the impeachment process, it would have been a completely legitimate undertaking. Though whether there would have been a political appetite for it is a different question. But unable to help themselves, Democrats politicized the committee to everyone's detriment. The riot was a disgraceful blight on American history and thus cried out for a truly bipartisan congressional investigation in which there were real hearings. The kind of traditional, adversarial, credible, fact-finding process that Americans across the political spectrum could accept as legitimate. Democrats instead opted for a show. They even brought in a network television executive to help them produce it and aired a couple of episodes in prime time. Nevertheless, there remains a gaping hole in their case. They lack evidence that Trump intended a violent riot at the Capitol, much less that he ordered one. The January 6th gaslighting committee may have been apt, as noted above, the purpose of gaslighting is to provide an alternative for actual debate and discourse because the gaslighter knows they will lose in an honest discussion. It should be noted that the one area where Democrats show any progress in this particular election cycle is on the subject of abortion. In reality, most of the country is probably on the legalization of abortion in the first 15 weeks, not thereafter, which would allow time for the procedure to take place in case of rape or incest. Pro-lifers asking for a total ban have been challenged, and we saw this in Red, Kansas, where they rejected such an approach. The concept of forcing a woman to bring a baby to term after rape is not a position I would necessarily advocate, but I also like this line from Walker. When told by senatorial opponent Raphael Warnack that abortion should be between two people, a woman and her doctor, Walker replied, but there are three people in that room if we count the baby. And of course, in many liberal circles, there is the gaslighting hysteria about national total bans, which Kansas has proved them all wrong. And of course, the omission of that inconvenient baby. And the same group of liberal progressives talk about women in terms of abortion, but cannot actually define what a woman is. So I would not say Kentachi Brown Jackson's evasive answer to what a woman is in her U.S. Supreme Court confirmation hearing was not gaslighting because she was not, in fact, a biologist. But Brown Jackson's not also an engineer. She's not a business person. She's not a farmer or a doctor. And yet she will stand in for these roles as a SCOTUS justice. As much fun as watching the Bidens of the world gaslight is, one should not get too sanguine. In 2003, after the invasion of Iraq by the American army, the so-called Baghdad Bob, real name Muhammad Sayyid al-Sahaf, was featured as a figure of fun. One of the best of his gaslightings was to proclaim that the American invasion itself was fiction while the presence of U.S. Army tanks could be clearly seen behind him. Yet, what was seen as gaslighting at the time sends kind of a chilling message today. In a piece in The Atlantic, author Emily Deprang states that Sahaf's nickname, Baghdad Bob, now denotes someone who confidently declares what everyone else can see as false. Someone so wrong, it's funny. Kind of like Harris declaring that the border is secure. And then quick shots to 
tens of thousands of people on a daily basis, literally tens of thousands of people crossing the Rio Grande without anybody to stop them. Here's the problem, though, with the Baghdad Bob thing. When read beside the eventual cost of America's decade in Iraq, Baghdad Bob isn't so funny anymore. He stated there were no weapons of mass destruction, that Iraq would prove to be a morass for America, and that it was an occupation, not a conquest, that would be the challenge. Sahaf wasn't just right about the fact that Iraqis would reject the American invasion, he was right about how. As predicted, troops were most vulnerable when in transit, especially from the people of the countryside, adds Dupraying. Think improvised explosive devices, or IEDs. Of the more than 6,600 soldiers killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, the numbers go down the middle. In other words, IEDs killed as many of our soldiers as died in firefights. Within the context of his obvious gaslighting, there was actual things that al-Sahaf actually got right. In some ways, the point of gaslighting is to distract. But what if the distraction is the central issue all along? It does not take a Nobel laureate in economics to know that if a government floods the nation with spending, the value of the dollars or money needed to spend will become lessened. If the value of a dollar drops, it takes more of those dollars to buy things. And if the corresponding income of an individual per se does not match the increase in those prices, people will pay more. It's called inflation. A few days ago, we saw the announcement that two large grocery chains, Kroger and Albertsons, announced plans to merge. The grocery store chains announced Friday that they've entered into that merger agreement that values the combined company at about $24.6 billion. The merger would create one of the largest grocery store chains in the U.S. Combined, Kroger and Albertsons operate nearly 5,000 stores nationwide, though they would have to close about 375 of those stores to either spin them off or sell them to competitors. As day follows night, our two socialist New England senators, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, weighed in. At a time when food prices are soaring as a result of corporate greed, it would be an absolute disaster to allow Kroger, the second largest grocery store in America, to merge with Albertsons, the fourth largest store in America. Sanders tweeted on Thursday, the Vermont senator adding that the Biden administration must reject the deal. Wait, wait, what? Corporate greed. Corporate greed is the issue with inflation? It is not the regular budgetary spending, which is already $1 trillion in the red. It is not the extra $6 trillion in COVID spending over the last two years. It is not the $800 billion of green pork boondoggles in that so-called inflation reduction bill. It is not the $400 billion of student loan forgiveness. Yep, it was those evil, pernicious corporations all along. Sanders is gaslighting, to be sure. But what neither senator would note is that Americans spend about $1 trillion on food, and the combined revenues of the two stores would be about 18% of that total. So, even if they were to try to collude on prices, it still would not be as, in, as effective as the senators would suggest. 
that is actually not the point. What Sanders is really up to is to transfer the concept of inflation over to the private business ledger and far away from the government. And what follows? The absolute disaster of price controls. That is is the point of it. Yes, Sanders is gaslighting, but he's gaslighting with a very specific purpose. This isn't just silly gaslighting like, like Harris saying, oh, there's no crisis at the border, and then just kind of ignore it and move on to other issues. No, Sanders is gaslighting for his very specific economic policy, and that is one of price controls. As we saw in the 1970s, they don't work. It would be horrible. It is funny to hear the youthful-looking Karini Jean-Pierre talk about being worn out by Joe Biden, who looks all in just, just walking out his front door. But the gaslighting of Sanders on inflation is not funny. It is the road to a far worse economy than the crappy one we have today. Thank you for listening to the Conservative Historian Podcast. We have a whole bunch of other podcasts, which I am hoping that you will sample. We're on all the major directories, so please take a look. My name is Bell Avis.